my prayer that this is a word of the Lord for us about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and, and the transformation that happens in each of us to become that child and, and how that works. So uh, I'm trusting that uh, the word of the Lord will bless us today and bless you wherever you are, uh, whether it's like Psalm 42 and you're worshiping and there's mountains and waves and you're somewhere else and uh, you just long to be in worship, or even if you're here, but you long to be in normal worship, if that makes sense. It just, it still feels different, doesn't it? Still feels different. Somebody said to me, I wish I could hug you. And uh, yeah, I wish they did, <laughs> you know? Because uh, I miss that part. I miss standing out uh, under the heater in the freezing cold to see all of you. But you know what? We watch, we've been watching the health statistics, and it's getting better and better and better. And pretty soon, I think we're gonna get a little taste of that normal. I'm pretty excited about that. And I'm thankful. This morning we were standing here praying before worship and one of the prayers was a prayer of thanksgiving because we've still been able to worship. Um, Cheryl, we were praying yesterday morning and, and she had a long prayer of thanksgiving because guess what? We went to the store and there was all sorts of food and we opened our fridge and there's all sorts of food and we have a car to get in to go do that and, and uh, our furnace works in our house and we were on the phone with somebody yesterday whose furnace didn't work and then their car broke down and it's like, oh, um, but to have a thankful heart for abundant blessings, that's a good posture to have, right? That regardless of all of this, uh, God is good. In the deepest valleys, we lift his name. We just sang that, so now we get to live that. Um, so I have a prayer here. Let's do that, and then we'll jump into the text. I'll invite you for a posture of prayer, and, uh, and we'll share this together. Uh, God of the covenant, for 40 days the flood swept away the world's corruption and watered new beginnings of righteousness and life. So in the saving flood of baptism, we are washed clean and born again. And throughout these 40 days of Lent, unseal within us a wellspring of your grace. Cleanse our heart of all that's not holy and cause your gift of new life to flourish once again. Grant us through this cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the blessings today. We ask God that you would bless the sacrament and that your word will go out to accomplish your purposes in the church and in the heart of every believer. And we pray this for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. So as we migrate in just a few minutes, around 17 and a half minutes, we're gonna celebrate communion and the elders uh, will be moving through the rows uh, to give you the elements uh, for communion today. Our journey to get there is a journey that takes us into the middle of a hot day where people are looking for living water. John chapter four starts where Jesus is on the move. Uh, the Pharisees had learned, it says in the first few verses of John four, the Pharisees had learned that Jesus' popularity was increasing and that he now has more disciples than John and he's baptized more people than John, they say. Um, the scripture teaches us that his disciples were the ones who were doing the baptizing, but it was all credited to Jesus that his church on the move was getting big, and the Pharisees were afraid of that influence and that they would be losing followers. In that place, it says that, so Jesus had to leave Judea, and so he headed back to Galilee, and to make that journey, uh, the road will take you through Samaria. Most Jews circumvented Samaria because they didn't approve of Samaritans. So they didn't even want to walk in the same place, tread the same road, drink the same water, share the same restaurants, whatever it was, so they would go, but not Jesus. He went straight through. Let's pick it up at verse 4. John 4, verse 4. Say yes if you're there. Yeah, good. Um, 
Notice how it begins in 4.4. It says, now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to. He could have circumvented, just like everybody else. They all knew the map. They, they knew the, um, the, the bypass that went around, so they didn't have to go around. Uh, they de- despised Samaritans. But John tells us he had to go because he had a divine appointment. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. This is all about water, living water. People go to the well to find life, to find refreshment, and they have to go again and again because that water gets used up. People get thirsty again. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. So here we are, it says, Scripture says it was about noon, Jesus was fatigued, he was weary, he was hungry, and it was noon. This is not the ordinary time that people go to the well. It's usually in the morning, in the cool of the day, or in the evening after the sun goes down. Desert land, I grew up in Southern California, and it's really wild, you can get this huge fluctuation in temperature in one day, because it heats up in the middle of the day, but as the night comes, all that hot air goes away, and desert air at night is much cooler. You're not supposed to be there at noon, that's the worst time to go. But it was important, because of who was there. As I meditated on that scripture, I wondered about your heart. I wondered about my own heart about fatigue and being weary and longing to be quenched, to be satisfied, to find something that actually blesses your heart and your soul. And here Jesus shows up for a divine appointment. Verse 7, so Jesus was already there and a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, why was she there in the middle of the day? Jesus was traveling, and we know he had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment, and here she is. But why was she there alone in the middle of the day? We know from the story she has a reputation and a past. She was a social outcast. She went there so she didn't have to talk to anybody, so that she didn't have to see them and look in their eyes or have someone guilt and shame her because of what she's done in the past. She did there. She went to the well in the middle of the day as an escape tool. I'm just going to go where nobody else is, and now here's Jesus sitting there. Will you give me a drink, he says. Verse 8, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food, so it was him alone with a Samaritan woman. Verse 9, after he asked her to give me a drink, the Samaritan woman said to him, "Um, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then parenthetically, John teaches us Jews don't associate with Samaritans. This isn't how it's supposed to be. He's not supposed to be talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. And yet here they are. In your scriptures, maybe you have a footnote by that sentence there in verse 9. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. That's actually a a euphemistic phrase, an idiomatic expression. Um, It means that um, they don't share the same things. They don't drink from the same cup. This is a great communion passage because Jesus is going to teach her something about the reason there was a divine appointment that she didn't know she had because they are going to drink from the same cup. 
Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Water now is flowing the wrong way, right? He's saying, ask me, and I'll give you living water. And she's wondering why he's asking her for the regular water out of the well. Verse 11, sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and livestock? Jesus said, ask me and I'll give you living water. But she was listening with her regular ears, not her heart. She thought he was talking about the water that's in the well, and that was a special well. It was dug by Jacob and took care of generations of the family, and that's where she went to find refreshment. You know that psalm that you read, Psalm 42, uh, for the prayer, uh, helps us understand that often we think that worship is in a place, that we go there. And that we have to go there to meet with God or that we have to go to that place to find the water that refreshes our souls. That there's something about the geography of worship. And, and this woman is saying that um, the place where all this happens is the primary thing. And Jesus was talking about something completely different. So he begins to break down the way she thinks about her relationship with God. Watch how this happens. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well's deep. She's thinking the physical well. Where can you get this water? It was kind of a rhetorical question. She wasn't thinking he had some special uh, stash. Are you greater than Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? And Jesus said in 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she still hasn't moved. She's hearing uh, what he's saying, but she's thinking, okay, this is somehow a thing where I won't be thirsty anymore, where I don't have to show up in the middle of the day at noon and meet other people who are going to shame me. I don't have to walk the city streets with these heavy urns of water. So she says in, in 13 uh, and 15, and the woman says, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. Still listening with her ears and not her heart. And I think it's because pain does that. Pain makes the candy shell on our hearts a little more crusty and hard. Jesus is describing life to her and she can't see it. The Messiah is standing in front of her, and she doesn't realize it. I think pain makes us guard our hearts. It keeps us closed. It closes us to good ideas. It closes us to help that's right in front of us. It closes us to understanding who Jesus is. I think Jesus knew that, that she was being defensive. You know, give me this water because I don't have to do this anymore. I'm tired of this chore. So Jesus changes the subject. They're talking about water, regular stuff. Now he starts to talk about her heart. Look at 16. So he says to her, go and call your husband and come back. He changed the conversation. He changed the game. And without accusation, right? I mean, she thinks that he doesn't know anything about who she is. She certainly tried to be out of the town where the people do know her. 
Go call your husband and come back. Without accusation, with a gentle patience, he changes the topic and addresses the issue in her heart. And she didn't even know that that was his plan. But this is how Jesus rolls. You see, he's not afraid to confront our issues. He knows that he is life. And when he meets us, we might be talking about physical stuff, about water in the well or, or masks in public or the frustration and anxiety of loss in a year of a pandemic or, or, or what it is to be in worship so different. I mean, we can get fixated on all the physical things of life, but when we show up in the presence of Jesus, he's a game changer. He changes everything. He redirects the conversation to talk about the issues in our hearts. Go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I wonder her voice. I wonder her eyes. Did she look down? Did she drop her voice and her eyes and look away? Or did she lean in a little bit because it's like, hey, don't, don't touch my heart. She says in 17, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. In just three sentences, look at what Jesus does. He affirms her. He reveals that he knows about all of her past, and he demonstrates the power of his love. It's as if he said to her, I know. I know you. And I love you. He didn't berate her. He didn't judge her. He just said, I know. And I think Jesus does the same when he meets with us. I know. I, I know your thoughts. I know your words before one of them is formed on your tongue. I know the words that you say before you speak them. I know your attitudes. I know your fears. I know the reasons that your relationship, uh, they dissolve and your heart breaks. This is a revelation of his divinity to this woman at the well. In the heat of the day, he's helping her discover who he is. You see, he knows by the power of the Spirit working in her that she has an anticipation for the Messiah. And so he leans in and he talks about that and he uncovers it in her heart. And she's been keeping her heart closed. She's been trying to keep people at an arm's distance saying, don't, don't know me. So now she, uh, she lets loose on him a little bit. I mean, he's a, a man and a Jew, and he's not supposed to be talking to her. She went there to be alone with her thoughts. She went there to be distracted from what happens in town. Verse 19, sir, the woman says, I can see you're a prophet. I wonder, was she intrigued? Like, this guy's a prophet. Or, cut it out, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. How dare, how dare you even talk to me? You guys don't even like Samaritans, let alone Samaritan women, and, and now you're trying to be nice? What is this? And it's messing her up. It's, it, love will do that. It, it'll mess you up because if we try and keep the one who knows us at a distance, because it's hard to be vulnerable, it's hard to be transparent, and then he still sneaks in with words and love, Oh, great. Well, you're a prophet. Well, tell me this then. How come you guys won't let us go to worship? You say the place where we have to worship is up in Jerusalem, up on the hill, and we can't go. The place we must worship. How do I do that? I'm not good enough. How do I do that? I'm just second class. 
I think that statement comes out of a heart filled with rejection and pain, and so now it's causing her to blame. It's your fault. And at the same time, she wants to be in that place. She has a longing to meet with God. And I love this story because she's normal. I think she's just like us. Because I think the believers in Jerusalem are just like the believers in Genesis. Longing to worship, a deep ache for not being able to go up to worship for weeks on end. And like her, we want to go to worship so that we can be in the presence of God and confess and sing and sacrifice and have our guilt taken care of and have our pain resolved and restore relationships. We long for that. But the accuser will always tell you, you're not good enough, you're second rate. And it's dangerous to meet with Jesus because he knows you. She's learning that it's not about the place. She was lost in that. You guys say we can't even go up to the temple. It's not about the place. But we get used to places, don't we? It's rhythms, it's sounds, it's people. This place used to smell like heaven. I mean coffee. You know, this is just a wonderful room filled with wonderful sinners. And you know who they are. Don't look around right now. <laughs> it's us. You see, it's not about the space. It's about the heart of those in the space. Remember when Jesus went into the temple that one time and he flipped tables? And he said, you're making this a, a, a commercial place of benefit. You're stealing from people by selling them sacrifices at 400%. He flipped the tables and he said, it's a den of thieves, not a house of prayer. It's about the heart, not about the place. It's not about space. It's about who's in that space. The reason that Jesus had this divine appointment with this woman at noon, out in the heat in the middle of the day, was because he wanted to reveal something to her. He wanted to teach her heart about something she didn't know. And maybe we need to know or remember it again that it's not about where, it's not about mountains or temple, it's always about the heart. Amen? Yeah. To know that God is not confi confined to a physical temple on the top of a hill or even under the cherubim in the Ark of the Covenant, none of those things confine God. If God is in a box, people say, no, 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 your God's just too small. He's in a box. I would say God's in the box if that's where you are. If you're in the box, he's there, amen? Wherever you are. You see, we don't go up to meet with God because he's not with us where we are. He's already with us, Emmanuel. God is the one who is with us. He comes to us. He goes where we are to rescue us. Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 90 and 9 and goes out to find the one who is lost, hoists that lamb up on his shoulders to take him home. Sure, there's a temple created for his dwelling. It's us. It's you. It's me. It's all of us. The Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of every believer as a seal and a pledge of what is and what is to come. And the Holy Spirit is busy working there, um, making us pure and holy, driving out darkness and sin, washing away guilt and shame, setting us free from bondage and slavery to sin. The work of God is in our hearts, wherever we are. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go there to find fellowship with God and commune with him or to be forgiven or to offer animal sacrifice. Jesus showed up and changed all of that. And this woman is about the first one that he tells. 
Look at verse 21. In the red letter edition, I love it that it's red because Jesus is talking. He says, woman, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain here or in Jerusalem there. It's not about a place. He was speaking to her because there was a longing and an anticipation for the Messiah that he was calling to life, that it would become the thing that defines her, that the Holy Spirit at work in her, in her would renew her mind so she could understand who Jesus is. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither here or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do, for salvation is from the Jews. I love verse 23. He says, the time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. They're the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. You see, the place and the location are simply accidental. It doesn't matter the space. This used to be a library, it used to be a medical billing office, uh, it used to be the place where the fire trucks parked in the back where the student center is, it used to be where the sheriff's office were. If you're old enough and lived here long enough, you probably paid your water bill right here, right? That used to be Mill Road right over there. I mean, this was the center of some weird universe. <laughs> and now it's filled with people for worship. It's not about the bricks or the ape leaks in the roof. <laughs> if you were here this week, you saw trash cans all over the place collecting water. The place and the location are accidental. Jesus said it's about the Spirit. Remember, we've been talking about covenant, about how it connects two hearts. It's about the heart of Jesus connected with the heart of a believer. And in that relationship, his character overwhelms our own and we're changed. Because he's truth and wisdom and holiness and power. He's infinite, invisible, and everywhere present, and immutable and incorruptible. And the character of God, we could list, uh, I'll take us a day just to talk about the beauty of God. Spirit and in truth. See, it has to be truth. Did you know that you can actually do worship without truth? You can actually show up and just go through the motions, but keep your heart closed? So Jesus says it's not just about your heart, it's about opening your heart. It's about letting God in to do the work of the Spirit. I was talking with one of our campus ministers uh, this morning about the work that's done in the neighborhoods and in the small groups at Grand Valley, uh, in our partnership and our ministry there. And one of the things that we get to do in discipleship is to invite them to an experience of not only showing up but opening up and letting the Word of God and the work of God move in there and clean that place up so that there is true spiritual freedom, so that we can be released from bondage and the sin that so easily entangles, so that we can be set free from slavery to sin and the power of our own flesh that just keeps dragging us off into trouble. It's about the open heart. You see, surrendering to the searching spirit of God, making known what we have hidden, letting him heal our hearts and our minds, making clean what we've polluted, letting him love what feels so unlovable. This is exactly what that woman needed to hear, that God is with her and loves her. And I can imagine that she was beginning to melt at the words of Jesus. Somehow the wise words of Jesus are like a key that opens even the most closed heart. 
but she's normal. Remember we said that? And like tears, you can choke, choke back your emotions, and you can get a stiff upper lip. That's the way we talk, right? It's like, you know, just, no, I'm not going to go to that place. You can't touch my heart. So she chokes him back, and she tries to put him off and the topic off till later. It's like, don't get too close to me. Listen to what she says. The woman says in verse 25, I know the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when he gets here, he'll explain it to us. It's like, don't, don't talk to me now. Don't, when the real Messiah is here. But I'm going to push you away again. And then Jesus, and I think he looked right at her. Verse 26, then Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. I'm here. Now, God is with you. I am truth. This is point blank discipleship. I mean, he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. Who would believe it? How could she believe it in this place? She'd been waiting for the, the Messiah, but almost no one thinks that God is going to show up where you are in the heat of your shame. In the heat of the day when no one else is around, when everyone else has left you, and you want to be alone because you don't even want to be alone with your thoughts, so you just distract yourself. Come on, anyone? I bet she's not the only one. What would happen if Jesus showed up in the middle of the heat that you're in right now? What would happen to you if Jesus would show up and say, it's me? If out, if out by the well of your loneliness, uh, left there alone with your pain, hoping that no one will really know you, God shows up and says, hey, it's me. And I have living water for you. Would you melt? In the sand in the middle of the heat of the day, would you stand up while your jaw drops? Would you run away? Look how it affected the woman. Follow me into verse 27. Here's a cool thing, right? This whole story so far, Jesus has been at the well with the woman, just the two of them in the heat of the day, and they're having this conversation. And remember, the disciples, they went into town, I don't know, through the drive-thru to get some Happy Meals. It doesn't say, just food. Um, so the disciples returned, and the scripture says in 27, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. <laughs> a couple thousand years ago, I guess that was an issue. <laughs> um, it's an amazing thing. If you read this in the Greek text, surprised to find him talking with a woman, um, it means my woman, and that word is most often used as my wife. He was talking to his bride, amen? Come on, the bride of Christ. And she didn't even know it. She spent her whole adult life looking for love, for a heart to be attached to, and in the heat of her shame, all alone, she meets Jesus. And John, in this little trickery in the text, uses a word that means the wife. <laughs> Jesus knows his bride, and she's beautiful. And I wonder if he's having fun. Does he have a grin <laughs> inside where he uses that word and, um, and he says, you're mine and you don't even know it yet? Hmm? I don't know if that ever has happened to you when you put your eyes on someone for the first time and you know you love them immediately. <laughs> but she wasn't ready for it. Uh, so the disciples, it says in Scripture, but they didn't dare talk. <laughs> they didn't say, what do you want? to the woman, and, and they didn't say to Jesus, why are you talking to her? That was enough of a surprise to keep them silent. <laughs> Probably the best um, verse in the whole scripture. The disciples had nothing to say. 
verse 28. Remember the question? If Jesus showed up in the, in the heat of your shame, what would you do? Look what she did. Leaving her jar of water, the woman went back to town. She left. Leaving her jar literally means to let go of or leave behind. It also means to forgive. She put it in the past. She left her past behind. This water that she kept coming to when she was thirsty again and thirsty again, doesn't that describe her life? It's almost analogous, right? Everything that she did to satisfy her heart just left her thirsty again. And in this place, um, almost like in John 8 where they had to drop the rocks and then leave, you know, when they were going to stone the woman in the temple, the one who was caught in sin. And, and so I have an old sermon. It's called uh, uh, Drop Your Rocks and Split. <laughs> um, she dropped her water, the water jar that didn't satisfy her heart, and she was leaving behind her life, the thing that didn't satisfy her heart. Leaving her water jar, that regular water that leaves you thirsty again, the old is gone, the new has come, all that good stuff. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, hey, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Hold the phone right here. This is usually the worst thing in the world. Austin, imagine. Austin, right? Imagine, so I don't really know you very well, but imagine that you had a history or a past, and I came to you and I started telling you that I knew all those things. What, you know, what, would, what would well up in you? What feeling? What emotion? You know, would, would you punch me? Uh, would, be nice. You're, you're huge. Um, you know, or would you just push me away? Would you turn and run? You know, well, this is what's going on here. So she, she runs into town, and instead of, of just being full of guilt and shame, she says, hey, there's someone who knows everything about me. Remember, that's the reason she was at the well in the middle of the day, because everybody knew about her and her past and her guilt and her shame, and they would throw it in her face so much as pie, right? And now she's excited that someone knows her. There's something different about the way that Jesus knows you, including your sin and the way he treats you. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Look at what happens when you're redeemed, when you're set free. Those things no longer accuse you. For those who are in Christ Jesus, finish it for me, there is no longer any condemnation. She's set free. She's been redeemed because now someone knows everything about her and says, oh, I love you anyway. Before, the thing that she was most afraid of, being known or despised or rejected or being heavy with shame, is now her glory. Jesus knows her every secret and loves her anyway. You should write a song. That's a great line. He didn't condemn her. He didn't judge her. He didn't mistreat her. He showed her kindness and grace and mercy and tenderness, and it gave her permission to open her heart even more. He respected her and affirmed her. She was a woman and a Samaritan woman. She was a sinner. This is how Jesus treats sinners who have a past. He loves them. He takes, man, I love this passage. He washes away shame and he restores your heart with glory. Hiding and hurting are undone by a heavenly healing. That's good alliteration right there. That's a bunch of H's. <laughs> Hiding and hurting are undone by a heavenly healing. And how is it that so many of us want to hide from Jesus? 
We long to be in worship. Oh, I get letters. Well, I long to be in worship, but people are less eager to be honest and transparent when meeting with Jesus, to speak truth. I see it all the time in discipleship. We hide our sin. We cover it. Um, there's a book, My Heart, Christ's Home, and it talks about those different rooms in our heart, and usually when Jesus comes over and we're hanging out, we go down the hallway and we leave a couple of those closet doors closed, and no, no, Jesus, don't go in there. That room is a mess. But that's why he came to go in there and clean it up. We long to be in worship, but we're less eager to be honest or transparent or speak the truth when we meet with God or listen to his words of love. I mean, can, can you hear it? Can you hear him speaking to you and reminding you how much he loves you? Just let it pour over you. Let that flood of forgiveness pour over you because it will change who you are. How is it that the nemesis of her past is now the glory of God's forgiveness? So she ran away from Jesus. She wasn't running away from Jesus. She was running toward her people to tell them that there was the Messiah, someone who knows everything about us. In that moment, she becomes an evangelist. And out of her pain and above her past, she becomes a church planter. Because running feet are beautiful feet, the scripture says. Bringing good news of the gospel of Jesus to the other Samaritans who also so desperately wanted to worship but couldn't go to the temple. To all those who so desperately want to know the Messiah, he shows up. In your town, in the heat of the day, by the well of your loneliness, where you keep going to find water that doesn't quench your thirst. He shows up in that place with love and tenderness. He shows up and he is beautiful and attractive. Look what being known by Jesus, being known by God, look what it does for a person. Verse 39, jump all the way down. Oh, verse 30 says, and they came out of the town and made their way towards Jesus. So now there's a, 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 a flock of Samaritans making their way out to the well. Jump down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Many believed a New Testament church planted right there in Samaria. And someday, you know what? Someday you'll get to meet every one of them. Someday you'll get a walk in glory and say, tell me the story, tell me the story about what it felt like when Jesus knew you, when, he, when you met him for the first time. Someday you'll get to meet them and they're going to look a lot like us. You see, we're a lot like them. A deep longing for worship and a deep need to be protected. You see, the body of Christ has bruises and tattoos and scars and a history and a past, but the body of Christ is beautiful because believers are beautiful. Believers are the body of Christ, his bride, his beloved, sinners washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. 
You know what Jesus was doing there in the heat of the day right outside of Sychar in Samaria? He was taking care of his wife. He was taking care of his body that day. He was feeding it with spiritual food. He was healing it from what was before, and he was sending it to the world. It wasn't Passover, but it was a harvest time. His scripture says he stayed there two days teaching them. Jesus had fellowship with them. Literally, he went into their home and broke bread with them. Anyone who invited him in, he spoke wise words. And his disciples probably were with him. It doesn't say that, but they were traveling with him. Remember, they went into town to get food, and now they're hanging out with Jesus. So here's Jesus pushing them through evangelism school. His disciples were in a crash course with him, and he was showing them how to love people and how to disciple them. And none of this happened in Jerusalem. They didn't have to go back to the promised land. They didn't have to go to the temple. It's interesting how temple worship keeps people out. But they communed with Jesus in their homes, in spirit and in truth, they believed. All because the woman who knew the one who knew her, all about her, told everyone about him. For me, this this passage is overwhelming and life-bringing and invigorating to know that heaven will be more full because of that woman at the well, the one who couldn't keep a husband, who couldn't figure out how to live life, who probably had all sorts of issues and scars. Maybe she was overrun with guilt and shame. But on that day, that day, she became a brand new person. And this is the story of our church. I know some of your stories. We are a ragtag bunch of bruised and broken believers, aren't we? We all come here with our luggage full of emotional issues and stories and things, and, and what do you do with that? Well, I, I think you bring it out to the well, and you let the one who is living water take care of it. Because here we are, a bunch of broken people, bringing life to our communities. Not because we're all that, but because Jesus is all that, amen? So we get to say, hey, you got to meet the Messiah because he knows everything about me and he loves me anyway. And I'm kind of unlovable. I mean, he knows my sin. He knows the secrets. And he loves and forgives me anyway. What is that? You know, I got to tell you this. I get a lot of letters, right? A lot of emails. And I got got one this week I want to share with you. Um... It wasn't one of those letters. It was an amazing letter from Resonant Global Mission, which uh, the Christian Reformed Church has a couple agencies. Home missions used to be home missions and world missions, and they combined a few years back. It's now called Resonate. And um, their objective is to help people reach out to their neighbors around the corner and around the world. Um, The Christian Reformed Church uh, is partnered in 40 different countries. Did you know that in last year, the year 2020, 7,900 new believers were grown up out of the heat of their shame to, to become uh, Christians? Just, and that's just through the partners that we work with. In North America alone, there are 43 brand new Christian Reformed Church plants. All in a year that seem to just dissolve in front of our eyes. But the Spirit of God is moving out because God is Spirit and He's bringing truth. I I read the RCA report. I used to be a part of the RCA. I was ordained in the RCA. And they have the same kind of numbers. They have a magazine called RCA Today. And I I, I read all the way through that. And there's story after story after story and picture after picture of exactly what you're already doing. They had pictures of garage churches and and front yard churches and small groups and, and water and food going to those places where there isn't 
any. The church is reaching all sorts of new people because we're in community in new ways. Building relationships in the most unlikely of places and none of them are in the temple. They're all by the well in the heat of it all. Sunday used to be the most segregated day of the week, but now they're meeting in homes and garages and small groups and they're all meeting Jesus. All because some forgiven sinners told their friends about the Messiah, about who he is that he knows them and loves them and feeds them and cares for them. He forgives all their sins and heals all their diseases. And we are, you are the body of Christ. He gave his own body over to the pain of judgment and death so we could be alive, so he could be alive in all of us. And so we're grateful and thankful. Thankful that he saved us and that we have an opportunity to tell others. So today we remember his love for us. We proclaim that by his death we are saved, that by his shed blood we are forgiven, and by his Holy Spirit we're not only set free, we're family. Brothers and sisters, members of the body of Christ, blessed to, part to participate as the body of Christ in the fellowship of all believers, what we used to call the communion of saints. And so today we share the supper together a demonstration of our love for Jesus Christ and each other, all because he loved us first. The Apostle Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians 10, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. And in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks and broke it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so today, as members of one body, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the church made alive in Jesus Christ, we remember and celebrate that by his death we have life, and that by his resurrection we too will be raised unto eternal life. This is our hope. It is the essence of our faith and belief, because we share one Lord. Amen. Whether you came here today or joined online and really had no idea how much Jesus loved you. Maybe you thought you had to go somewhere holy and special to meet him, but listen to what we learned today. He came to meet you to make you holy because you're already special to him. And now we get to deal with that. I want you to know God as your Father and Jesus as your Savior, and that you, when you know God, become different full of confidence, full of gratitude because the power of his love and mercy changes who you are and draws you in and our hearts become tender before him. So don't just travel with Alive as most excellent roommates hanging out for coffee once in a while. Travel as family, covenanted together to grow with each other, to be on mission together, to reach out and connect. And if you don't have a place to belong, we're here. And we would love to tell you about the one who knows everything we've ever done and loves us anyway. So reach out, join at aliveandgenison.org, just fill out a connect card and we'll call you and pray with you or bring you life, however that looks. So as you move from this place 
out into community. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he cause his face to look directly at you to grant you his peace. Amen.